0: Okay, well, thank you very much, everyone, for taking the time today to join us. I understand that you're all extremely busy. uh, And this is another one in our great webinar series where we share insights. And today's guest, I'd like to welcome Stephanie. I first came across Stephanie uh, when she did a TED Talk, an amazing TED Talk. uh, And I connected with her and we've since shared the stage together at events and I've also been to speak at uh, an academy that she runs in Amsterdam and she's been uh, very involved with uh, you know some great work that we've been involved in in Amsterdam. A great speaker you're going to learn some great things so Stephanie I'm going to hand over to you before I do that anyone else that's just arriving if you could make sure that your video is turned off uh, and Stephanie is going to have to turn her video off because of bandwidth issues. So if you could all turn your video off, that would be really helpful. Stephanie, I will now turn on your microphone so that we can hear you. Over to you, Stephanie. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mark. Perfect. <coughs> okay over to you yes thank you thank you mark ladies and gentlemen we have all heard it we have heard it we are in a crisis what you may not have heard however is that the root of the word crisis actually means decision point and isn't that a much more empowering way to look at the situation we are in workplace is a system it has systems within it and it is itself a system within others as Alfred Whitehead states The misconception is the notion of independent existence. There is no such mode of existence. Every entity is to be understood in terms of the way it is interwoven with the rest of the universe. So let's explore the interwoven parts of the workplace today. In the world of work, decades ago, the question was one of utility. What do employees need to work? This question then evolved into a question of productivity. What do they need to work more, better, or faster? Then again, evolved into a question of engagement. What makes employees happier so they perform better? More recently, and before the whole pandemic hit, the question had evolved once again, and it was no more a question of engagement, but it had become a question of experience. What makes employees want to be at work, in the office, in the workplace, even though they might not need to be there? What has happened now, now that the pandemic has hit, we have actually been jolted back into the basics. And we have gone back to the basic question of utility, special emphasis on safety. And the question now is, what do employees need to work safely? Now, how does that affect the redefining the workplace? And what are the consequences of going back to this question of basic utility with safety on redefining the workplace. The workplace was never about the office alone. The workplace was never the equivalent of the office space. What it has always been about is the full experience. So in any organization and ever since organizations started forming, the workplace experience has been the result of three environments. The first is the physical environment. This is the space in which employees actually work. The surroundings, including the closed offices or open floor plans employees are in, the furniture, the art on the walls, etc. Now that most of us are working from home or combining home and the office, the physical environment has definitely been redefined. The second environment is the technological environment. This comprises the tools that we use to communicate, collaborate, and actually get the work done. You can imagine that this includes hardware, software, user interface, etc. This, too, has been redefined since the pandemic started and we have been working heavily remotely. People have discovered that what we thought was nearly impossible actually works to a certain extent. And we have all developed love and and hate relationships with numerous video conferencing softwares and platforms. The third environment that affects workplace experience is actually the cultural environment. Now, this is the environment you may not be able to touch or see, but you can definitely feel. It's the vibe of the organization, whether created intentionally or not. The culture is what determines how employees are treated and how they behave, their values, unspoken rules, and how they even do the work. This has also, without a doubt, been redefined in light of what we are living through. The workplace as a whole, Is about the full experience. It's about those three environments, the physical, the technological and the cultural. The the workplace experience is made of those three and as each of the three undergo a transformation, the workplace experience itself is now being fundamentally redefined as well. So let's look at how the workplace is being redefined. With the hit of the pandemic, we saw what we could actually call an exodus from the contained office to a network, a network of people, a network of facilities and a network of ideas and documents. Now, of course, this is not the first time that a company behaves um, as a network. There are numerous companies out there that have been working in a decentralized models for a while and doing it quite successfully. What is new here is that we are now forced to take those learnings and apply them at an unprecedented scale and extent across all organizations, all industries, and all countries and continents. We have effectively gone from a box to a network. And without the walls containing the network, the connections within the network become more important than ever. So let's zoom in on one of those connections. Each one of these connections linking two nodes is actually a relationship. When nurtured, when put into action, when energized, this relationship becomes an interaction. I actually find an interaction as a living relationship. An interaction is a living relationship. So the question is, how do we as workplace professionals foster these interactions in this network that is now the workplace? Of course, what you realize is that every interaction happens within a certain context. The context can be physical or digital, visible or intangible, intentional or unconscious. So the question then becomes, how do we as workplace professionals actually foster interactions without a contained space, without a container? If the glass is broken, how do you keep the water together? How do we foster and nurture interactions in a multiple Context and a multitude of out of reach contexts, such as people's homes, for example. Suddenly the scope of every workplace professional out there has been expanded. We have gone from a container to a network and we now have to operate in a network of contexts. The workplace is now changed and the workplace is this collection of different contexts. And for that, we can give it a new name. We can call the workplace, the WorkNet. WorkNet is this workplace that has now expanded to become a collection and a network of contexts. Now, in any network, the connections, the interactions become the most crucial thing, and this WorkNet is no exception. So the focus now is actually on this question of how do we as WorkNet professionals foster the interactions in a network of contexts, and how do we indeed focus on the interactions in the worknet and how do we nurture them, how do we foster them and how do we ensure that they remain strong in order to keep the network together. If you were to take one thing out of my presentation here today, I would hope it would be this mind shift that I'm about to share. Now to explain the mind shift I usually use a story and this story is about um, this story is about university campus. It's an architect who was asked to design a university campus on a site that from above would have looked something like this. So it's a pretty simple site. <clears throat> the architect goes ahead and designs the different departments and gets them built on site. However, contrary to the expectation of the staff and students, she doesn't design any routes or pathways to walk on. Instead, she plants the whole site with grass. After the first semester, paths appear in the grass on their own the architect then comes back and paves these pathways just as they appeared. Not only were these pathways in unusual locations that she couldn't have predicted, she also realized that none of them were straight. Now, i want tell the story to highlight one of the most important things here, which is the role that the architect decided to embrace. And this shift from being dictator to being a facilitator. The shift from dictating to facilitating is the one mind shift that is the most important thing to adopt right now in order to be able to facilitate the interactions in the work net. The question then becomes, how can we design contexts that actually foster interactions? How do we actually do this? Now, this question is what drives our entire work at ACA Architects. Uh, AKA Architects is an architecture and uh, design studio based in Amsterdam. And the very reason ACA was founded uh, almost a decade ago now is based on this vision, on this philosophy that we call architecting interaction. And architecting interaction is basically based on the belief we have that interactions are the seeds of innovation. Interactions are the seeds of innovation, and this is why we focus on fostering the interactions to stimulate innovation. In essence, what we aim to do is stimulate innovation by actually facilitating interactions since they are the seeds of innovation. Now, the way we facilitate interactions is not by dictating them, but indeed by facilitating them. And that means by creating the context for them to emerge in. We facilitate interactions by creating the fruitful context where interactions can emerge. Until recently, this context has been the office. And that includes different forms of the office. That could be a new-built headquarter, a new-built building. Uh, That could be a renovated existing building. And that can also be an upgrade of an office that is actually inhabited. So an optimizing of an inhabited office. (coughs) Excuse me. What has happened recently since the pandemic hit is that this context that has been all these forms of office before, has now been expanded to include people's homes. It has also been expanded to include a necessary redesign of the the different forms of the workplace and the different forms of the offices. Soon, it will also include the third place. Now, I personally predict that as we are allowed to go back to work, Uh, Of course, we will have to obey strict regulations, one of which is the distancing. And that simply means, to put it very simply, the entire workforce cannot be in the office at the same time. We have already started seeing the the distancing. We have already started seeing the creation of shifts of the workforce. And we now have 30% to 50% maybe of the workforce allowed into the office at one given time. That means that on the days that we are not allowed into the office, And as the lockdown starts to actually relax a little bit, people will soon want a third place that is not home. Whether that's a cafe, a library, new forms of co-working spaces, or even a new typology that has not emerged yet, the office is the workplace. The work net that I'm referring to is actually the whole extended version of these different contexts. It's the workplace, it's home, and it's any form of third place that will come and add itself to the mix. So if we look at this uh, trend of expanding what the context means, um, what we see is a possibility for three stages of recovery. Before COVID-19, most of us worked in the office most of the time. When COVID-19 hit, we actually saw an exodus from the office to our homes. Now, after the initial shock of taking refuge at home, there are three stages of recovery that we can observe. Stage one has to do with our homes being redefined. Now that we have to work, live, sleep, educate our children, and relax all in the same place, our homes have acquired new meaning, and our relationship to our homes is being redefined. Now, this is happening whether we like it or not, so it would, of course, be much better if we did that intentionally. Um, I'm not going to go into all the details here about how to optimize uh, our homes for a better experience of working from home. But if you are interested, please refer to our website. There is a three-part article that goes into the details of this, advising how to redefine your home and how to also help your employees do the same. Stage two. After we are now slowly going back to the office, we're going to enter into stage two. Now, stage two has uh, two interesting things to notice. One, nothing will be the same as before. So first of all, going back to work does not mean we won't be working from home anymore. We now have to embrace both. Second, going back to work will not mean we're going back to the same office that we left. The office will need to be redesigned to adapt to the new restrictions and guidelines of what we're calling the 1.5 meter economy so employees can go back to work safely. Again, I'm not going to go into all the details here, but if you are interested, there is a number of articles that go into the details of how to adapt your workplace to the 1.5 meter economy and why it is crucial to do so now with no further delay. Now, when we look at what happens after stage 2, I personally predict that once the travel restrictions and the movements have loosened a little bit, we will enter into stage 3. And stage three is where, as I mentioned, some people will get tired of having to work from home on the days they're not part of the 50% of the workforce that's allowed in the office. And so they will start searching for a third place to work from. Whether that's a cafe, a library, a form we know or a form we don't know yet, all of these locations will have to be redefined and redesigned. And none of them will be as we have known them so far. The future of work is this network of contexts, this network of locations, contexts and places. So the question then becomes, how do we as WorkNet professionals, workplace professionals, WorkNet professionals, do the following? How do we foster the interactions of employees in their own homes? How do we adapt our workplaces to the 1.5 meter economy? And how do we support employees' interactions in the third places? Maybe you may ask, I have to do all of these things now in places that I can't even reach and and I don't know and I have no control over. In essence, this is now the question. Our scope as workplace professionals has suddenly expanded. Now that working from outside the office is not a personal choice but rather an, an almost an imposed company measure, the scope and role as Workplace professionals, whether that's in HR, whether that's in facility management, real estate, or even architecture and design, we're looking at an expanded scope. This is a decision point for all of us workplace professionals. The future of work is working in a network of contexts. The workplace is now what I'm calling WorkNet. And your WorkNet is now your most valuable asset. So the question is, How are you going to use this WorkNet as a strategic tool that can support, engage, and nurture your employees' interactions? How do we use this WorkNet as a strategic tool to support, engage, and nurture employees going forward? So let's focus a little bit on employees and look at their safety, their well-being, and their happiness. I believe that your worknet is a strategic tool that can drive individuals' well being and company growth. And the reason I can make a statement like this is the following When we're looking at your worknet, which is the network of contexts that now form the new workplace, we're looking at an incredible opportunity. We are looking at the opportunity to be able to optimize this new form of the workplace. And when we optimize this work net properly, it can do two major things for us as an organization. First of all, optimizing the work net net properly means that we can maximize the return on investment on our real estate costs as an organization. Of course, you realize and you can imagine that we can use the square meters better, we can use less of them, we can use them more optimally. Bottom line is we can improve on the use of our real estate, which means that optimizing the work net and upgrading the work net as a design and as behavior in it and as the use of it means a better return on investment on our real estate costs. The second thing that the work net, properly optimized work net can do for us as an organization is optimize the return on investment on our personnel costs. It doesn't take much to explain or see that people working in a better environment will be able to perform better. And that means that we're aiming here, the end goal is the safety, the well-being and the happiness of employees. And the reason that is important is because global research has already shown that happier employees actually leads to less turnover, less sick leave, less burnout, more alignment, more productivity, more sales, more retention and more innovation. For those of us who like the exact facts and figures, we, happiness at work can reduce turnover by 51%, reduce by 66%, can reduce burnout by 125%, can increase alignment by 41%, increase productivity by 21%, sales by 37%, retention by 40 and happiness at work can increase innovation by 300%. If you like the exact source of those statistics and and this research, please get in touch, and I will be happy to share it. The point, of course, is not in the exact numbers. The point here is to realize that an optimized work net can eventually lead to safer, better well-being and increased happiness for employees, which results in all benefits for the organization that can easily lead to the success of the organization as a whole. So optimizing the work net indeed can increase the return on investment of the real estate cost and the return on investment of the personnel costs, which are of course the two most expensive costs of most organizations out there. And this is why I can make a statement such as a better work net can improve the health, well-being and experience of employees, make them happier and the organization more successful however this is on one condition and that condition boils down to the interactions in the worknet to be specific it boils down to the quality of how we facilitate the interactions in the worknet facilitating the interactions in the worknet is a matter of process a question of process so let's go back and look at this question one more time how can we design workplaces that foster interactions This is really the question. It's a how-to question. And the idea now is to look at the process behind it. Before I go into our process, let me give you a bit of an overview. The the architectural process, albeit simplified, basically starts at the beginning of design and ends at the end of construction, uh, in the best of cases, if if we are lucky as architects. Um, The idea, of course, here is that, in my personal humble opinion, there are two mistakes with this process. Um, let me explain. One mistake is before and one mistake is after. In order to create context that can truly foster interactions, these contexts, these places need to be more than form. They need to be about flow. So if we want to not dictate, but rather facilitate, we need to create a different process. So at ACA Architects, what we did is we extended the end change the beginning, and actually redesign the middle. And what happens is this architecture process became an architecting interaction process where architecture is not the end goal, but actually a means to an end. The means is the architecture, the architecting, and the end is fostering interactions. The ACCA process we created um, is a custom-made tailored process that is made of four phases. Three of these phases happen before users move in, before the space is inhabited, and the last phase can only take place after people have moved into this new space, whether it's an office, a home, a museum, you name it, and have started using it. Phase one is what we call Appreciate. And phase one is centered around creating an aligned understanding among the different people involved by this project. So this is, fundamentally participatory process where the first step of the process is us basically looking at who are the different groups of people concerned by this project. And we start not necessarily with the client that is financing the project, but actually by the end user. So if it is a school, we are talking about the students as the first group of people to be engaged. In the workplace, of course, we are talking about employees. And from there, we go into management, we go into their clients, we go into uh, the catering team, we go into the cleaning team, etc., etc. Every group of people concerned by this project has a perspective to share and insights to share that we are eager to collect. And from that exercise of consultation, what we call community consultation, we actually create an aligned understanding of The situation, what the challenges are and what the different needs of the different groups are. Now this phase is of course very important for us as architects and designers to understand the community of people we are designing for. It has of course also turned out to be equally if not more important for the people themselves to create an alignment among each other, which you might be surprised doesn't always exist in organizations. So this is really an essential first phase that normally does not exist in an architecture process, a customary architecture process. At the end of of this first phase is where we have an aligned understanding and we then go into phase two that we call the kernel. Phase two is based on transforming this aligned understanding we reached in phase one into a shared vision. It is very important that the vision for the project that emerges in this phase is a shared vision. And it's only from there that we go to phase three, which we call Kickstart. And phase three is based on the learning by doing. This is where most of the bulk of the architecture process, as we may know it happens. This is where design is developed, the construction drawings, permit, et etc., et and even construction. At the end of this phase, is traditionally where the project ends, um, project is delivered, the keys are handed over to the client, people move in, and the architects are never to be seen again, like a good criminal that doesn't go back to the scene of the crime. And of course, this is not what we want. What we do here is once people are able to move into the space, what we do is we go into phase four. And phase four is what we call the adapting phase. And in this phase, it is based on observing real time behavior that we are able to refine and fine tune the last details of the space. And this is where the details make all the difference. This is where you know, small tweaks and small refinements elevate the entire design and make it really fit the habits, the needs, and um, the interactions of the community using it um, optimally. So, the last phase of this process Uh, which is adapting actually creates a renewed understanding, a renewed appreciation, which indeed means that this process is not a linear process, but a circular process. The most important thing to note about this process is that it's based and it was designed based on a belief that we have that users, people are the experts in how they use a space usually knocks architects off from their chairs. And this is of course not to undermine any other expertise. This is simply to add one to the mix. Users, people have an expertise in how they use their space. And that means that we as architects and facilitators of this process need to be able to have the, 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 the skills and the maturity to extract that expertise from people and base the design and the vision and the, the the space on that. And this is how we truly serve the community that we are designing for. Ladies and gentlemen, your worknet is a strategic tool that can nurture your employees' well-being and support the entire organization. And this is now an opportunity like no other to be able to take this to the next level. In conclusion, I can say that architecting interaction is a vision as a vision is bigger than architecture and bigger than design it is actually in essence about how do we innovate through interactions if you'd like more information or even the step by step process of every phase I showed about how to innovate through interactions please refer to the book Um, in fact if you'd like today's presentations I'll be happy to share it get in touch with us and we will be able to send it to you. What I will say now is that we are at a turning point, a decision point. There can be no return to normal from here. In fact, in Hong Kong, graffiti reads, there can be no return to normal because normal was the problem in the first place. And I found that quite insightful. Over decades, we have seen the workplace evolve through four questions of utility, productivity, engagement, and experience. The shock of this crisis has now thrown us back into the basic question of utility with an extra emphasis on safety. From this point onwards, my personal hope is that we don't go back to the old normal. I do not think that we should go through the evolution again, step-by-step through these four questions. My personal hope is that instead, we leapfrog into a higher question of meaning. How do we reshape the world of work to serve a higher purpose? How do we reshape our work to serve a higher purpose? Ladies and gentlemen, I leave you with the question. How will you turn this crisis, this decision point we are at, into an opportunity to learn from today so we can design a tomorrow that is better than yesterday? How will we turn this crisis into an opportunity to learn from today so that we can design a tomorrow that is better than yesterday. There is no question that we are going through a global transition. During a transition, there are only three types of people. There are people who make things happen. There are those who watch things happen. And there are those who ask, what happened? Which will you be? Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Stephanie. Superb. Lots of questions for you, Uh, so I hope you're ready. And if you want to stop presenting and then you can turn on your video so that we can see you, that would be really helpful. Absolutely.
1: Let's do that.
0: Great. Okay, we can we can see you now. And uh, thank you. Uh, could you just repeat the name of the book? Someone's just asked if you could repeat the name of your book.
1: Architect Interaction.
0: Okay, and we will send a link to that uh, in the follow-up email with everyone. Absolutely,
1: yeah. Yeah, you can get it from a number of places, so we can include all those uh, in an email for ease of uh, finding.
0: Okay, you use the word interaction a lot. One question is, how do you map interactions?
1: Yeah, that's 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 the essence question, and that you know we spent a lot of time on that at the very beginning of how do we define interactions? What does it mean? Um, what is an interaction and what isn't? And interaction, indeed, the reason we use that word is because it is an umbrella word, and um, the, the the easiest way to define it or map it is, um, it's a it's a relationship that is put into action. So. Think of it that way. If you have two people that are colleagues, the fact that they are colleagues is actually a relationship. When something happens between them, that's a form of an interaction. Now, interactions can be formal or informal, planned or spontaneous. There are, you know, different forms of interactions uh, out there. If you focus specifically on the workplace, actually, I find uh, Herman Miller's Ten Modes of Work, a fascinating way of really pinpointing the essential forms of interactions that happen in the workplace. For AKA architects, when we talk about interactions, it's really this idea of um, an exchange of some sort, something happening between two or more parties. We we define it that, that widely, uh, basically.
0: Okay, thank you. Um do you think that savings on real estate is going to be transferred and, and maybe spent on employees homes where our costs of people working from a home might increase
1: one can only hope <laughs> i I don't, I don't know i think it is definitely um, an opportunity you know what i find fascinating with with the with this with what happened in the last uh, 6 months now is you know don't get me wrong, it's it's a terrible, terrible tragedy and it's, it's a dreadful situation that we are going in and it's one to be taken very seriously. And as an eternal optimist, I try to see the silver lining in things and, you know, if you look at it from a different angle, this has been a global experiment in ways of working. One that we couldn't actually have planned, you know, the fact of having organizations from around the world in all industries, actually work from home for this extended period of time is a great opportunity, again tragic reasons aside, is a great opportunity to look at what can we learn from this experiment and what can we implement going forward. And if we can do so much without the real estate of the office, now it doesn't mean that what has happened has been optimal and it doesn't mean that we should continue working from home 100% at the time. But what has happened with this experiment is that the spectrum of choices has been expanded. And before we we thought that we had a choice between working from the office or working from home one day a week, let's say. Now we have seen that it's actually possible, maybe not optimal, but possible to work from home five days a week. Now, that's not optimal for the organization. That's not optimal for teams. It's also not optimal for certain individuals. My point is it's the, the, the possibilities have been stretched and now we have a bigger spectrum to choose from. So that's really, really interesting to look at and say, what do we do now? You know, what we thought was impossible works to a certain extent. How do we opt- optimize it from here and how do we go to an optimal thing? Uh, reducing real estate is definitely um, an idea that should be explored. Now, just because we're reducing real estate does not mean that it will automatically be used better. You know, this needs to be done very, very carefully with a lot of considerations in mind. And I cannot urge enough the importance of engaging people in the process. You know, it doesn't matter if the process or the solution are genius. If people are not involved, accepting it and adopting it is not going to be easy. And the whole solution could fail just because people were not involved in the process. So, you know, that's a whole other topic we can dive into. but there's definitely an opportunity to take the savings from real estate and empower people in their homes uh, to work better, to work more uh, more efficiently. And, you know, it's not even about having more space at home. Even the same quantity of space can be optimized to have better quality so that you can work and have personal life in the same space without them becoming uh, totally inseparable, which is not good for uh, mental health, right? Which is a whole other things that we could get into as well.
0: In fact, that does lead to another question. I saw, which do you think architects are going to have to design homes of the future in a different way to uh, incorporate home working in a better way?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, at ACA Architects, we have actually started doing that already, um, which is which is uh, which is quite interesting and very mature requests from clients to say look, I can see where this is going. I'm going to have to work from my house a lot more. And, you know, of course, different uh, people's homes are all different. Some have the space to kind of dedicate a home office and some don't, and some have um, challenges that are about having children in the household. You know, some have roommates, some are alone. All of those uh, challenges have to be taken into consideration. And I think um, definitely as architects, we have a responsibility to really look at how do we help people have better interactions um, through their space. You know, personally, that's the reason I actually became an architect in the first place. I was really drawn by this opportunity and responsibility to create environment for people that will affect them, that will hopefully enhance their their day, their mood, their, their performance, their ways of working, their relationship with their, Um, family members, even, you know, all of those different facets of someone's life. I think those are directly related to the responsibility of an architect when we are designing the space that people are going to be spending time in.
0: Thank you. Quite a few people were asking you where the source of your happiness research was. What was the source for that?
1: Yeah, that comes from research done by, uh, I believe the book is called Delivering Happiness. Um, and it comes from um, Tony Tsai, if I'm saying the name correctly, um, who is the founder of Zappos. So there is a website called Delivering Happiness. And there's, of course, the book uh, as well. And this is where all of that was uh, pulled out from.
0: OK, thank you. I'm just going to see if I can post that in in the group. Uh, a sub- couple of people yeah, are you saying, would you, would you
1: follow up email?
0: Okay, great. Would you mind me if I posted your email address because people did want to, to contact you, if I can post it in the chat box. Are you okay with that?
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, of course, in the presentation as well. It's let's talk letstalk.com. Okay. Yeah, okay. this is also my personal one. That's also good.
0: Okay, great. Uh, okay, some more questions for you. Uh, do you think that we can prove that the change in the workplace directly leads to the percentage improvement that you quoted? Is is the change in the workplace the only cause, or is it just a correlation?
1: Um, That's a very difficult thing to prove, which is is why I always take research with a bit of a a pinch of salt, as they say. Um, it's, It's a difficult thing to prove. Uh, in terms of uh, direct cause uh, cause and effect. Um, I do believe, however, that uh, there is definitely a relationship and there's definitely a correlation. Now, is it 21%? Is it 22%? You know, for me, it's not about if the numbers are true. It's about the truth in the numbers. And that's really what I try to focus on.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, where I, I see someone suggested that people are actually working longer at longer hours and that some companies Are taking advantage of this. Do you think that's the case?
1: You know, I, I wrote an article specifically about that at the very beginning because it, it started happening uh, Even to me and it's a very um You know, it can go either way of course, uh, but it's a very easy thing that you can see can happen So very simple example, right? You've worked the day you're done, Um, you close down, let's say, at six o'clock, you do other things around the household, dinner, this, this, whatever, and then you think, okay, I'm gonna sit down and watch a movie. Well, movies come to us through Netflix these days, and that means it comes to us through our laptop. So you open, you know, you sit on your couch and you open your laptop and you have every intent and purpose to watch uh, something on on your computer and an email pops up and, you know, you just, a quick answer, and before you know it, an hour has passed by and you're doing emails. So, definitely, it is something that can happen. Um, I think the biggest risk of um, working from home for an extended period of time is the blurred boundaries between work and um, personal life or non-work. Um, and I think the the main risk of that is um, mental well-being. Mental well-being, emotional well-being, and social well-being. And I think that's that's really something that... I don't hear um, enough conversations about uh, out there in the global discourse on how do we work now. And, and that, that really, you know, that really worked me. And again, I wrote about that because of those, uh, those issues. And we tried to share some tips and tricks about how do you use, um, for most of us, a small space at home to do different things and keep those worlds separate. Uh, and you can do that with with different um, stimulus and different triggers. For example, on the five senses, you know, it's it's kind of taking the root of uh, of psychology uh, more than um, spatial design. If you don't have the space, um, or small small tricks, right? For example, it is important that you train your brain to have a different association when you're in work mode or when you're in personal mode, uh, and that means. Uh, sitting in a different orientation in your on your kitchen table, let's say, sitting in a way that you usually never sit to give yourself a different view, but then keep those separate. When you sit that way, it's for work, and when you sit to have dinner with the family, it's another one. It's a small thing, and it may sound silly, but actually it works if you compound those uh, those associations in the brain, and this is where the whole you know neural part of the conversation comes in. So there is a lot of that on our website that we explored as well, but it's definitely a risk to um, work more, but also work in a less um, structured or separated way. And the risk for burnout then um, might increase, which is quite a a big worry in the West since we've seen already such an increase even before this whole uh, lockdown situation.
0: Yeah, and in fact, that, one of the suggestions comes in that we should turn off the email pop-up function so that we're not uh, not disturbed. Right, which is which is a good idea. Uh, a question yeah, for Ruth. That's... Yeah. Okay. How do we engage with the HR, the personnel team, to make sure they're participating in the worknet and getting the benefits? With the, sorry, with the people to make sure that they're participating in the worknet and getting the benefits. How do you engage with people?
1: And- Part of the question: Would you be able to say it again?
0: Yeah. How do we engage with the people, the users, the personnel to make sure they're participating in the work and getting the benefits?
1: Yeah. So um, the the process of engaging people, um, the one the one we use at least. Of course, there there is a number of them out there. The one we use is the one I briefly uh, went over in the presentation, and you know we use this process. Uh, we originally designed this process for um, for architectural projects, for design and construction. And uh, what we quickly found out, actually our, cli- our clients found that out uh, sooner than we did, uh, where the fact that this, this process can be applied to any question. It doesn't have to be an architectural question or an architectural project. So um, we were asked by a number of clients to come in and help them address different sorts of questions and different sorts of challenges through this process even when they did not lead to any design or any architecture and that made us realize that actually what is important in this process is the principle of each phase and the practices that we do there and not necessarily what it's applied uh, applied to Um, so the the engagement would um, look something like that you start by actually rounding people in the organization. Communication is essential um, and the idea is to make sure that it's not about specific people but it's about the profile they represent. That profile of personality, that profile of role and responsibilities in the organization, that profile of the departments they're in, that profile of a number of things. The idea is to have an organic uh, process but do check that Um, Every group in the organization is represented well enough. And then the, you know, we take people through a number of steps. They're basically, um, we call them community consultation sessions and they're depending on the size of the group, they are somewhere between a structured conversation to a more uh, full on workshop. if, if you are interested, actually, we have the workbook uh, available, so we can also share that in the, in the follow-up email and that workbook really takes you through step-by-step and every exercise of how to do through the four stages um, that I showed during the presentation, um, whatever the question that you're applying it on, onto, and in this case, it would be about how do we create the new worknet? What does it look like for our organization specifically?
0: Stephanie this has been excellent thank you very much we try to give people 10 minutes before their next meeting or their lunch break so i think we're kind of there i just wanted to say absolutely superb we really enjoyed that lots of of positive feedback coming in in the chat box and no doubt you're going to get a few emails with a few more questions uh, and thank you everyone that's joined us do check out check out our other events we have another one from tim oldman of leasman coming up uh, and also my colleague uh, Ryan Anderson is sharing about technology next week and the living office that Stephanie referred to was sharing that on Monday. Stephanie, thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the day, everyone.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone.
0: Thank you.